going to mass in the same place for several years, I found that I have a tendency to always start to stare off at the same spot when I'm daydreaming during the homily. You shouldn't do that, but you probably do. Um, what, either way, when I was in St. Joseph Seminary in Covington, Louisiana, that spot for me was a mural that was right across from the monastic choir, uh, which depicted a very old and a frantic-looking Abraham holding down a teenage Isaac who's laid across a large rock. In Abraham's upraised hand is a crooked dagger, which has been stopped midair by a hand reaching out from the cloud. There's a lot of emotion in this scene. You have the confused and the terrified look on Abraham's faith, face, and then you have the calm of Isaac. It's a bit inaccurate because in the real story, God doesn't actually reach out from heaven and stop Abraham. He sends an angel who comes to talk to Abraham, but you never see God's hand. Isaac is also not really a teenager in the story. Perhaps sometimes we think about him as a young kid. The sacred author of the book of Genesis is very careful to continually give us the age of Abraham and his wife Sarah all through the story, which allows us to narrow down Isaac's age at this point to about the early to the mid-30s. And that detail in itself should really change our perspective on this story. Who really holds the upper hand here? the old, weak, crippled Abraham, or the young Isaac, who is in the prime of his life. Genesis is specific enough to tell us that Abraham wasn't strong enough to carry the wood for the sacrifice. So Abraham and Isaac will make this climb up the mountain, Isaac supporting him all the way. And as they go, Isaac himself is carrying the wood and the fire for the offering. And then the location isn't insignificant. Mount Moriah, that's how it's known in Genesis. It's later known by another name once the area surrounding it is no longer under pagan rule. Then it's known as Mount Calvary. Now the image really shouldn't be hidden from us. Here we have this young man in his 30s carrying wood for a sacrifice up Mount Calvary. And he himself is the victim for that sacrifice. In all reality, he's a willing victim. We can't imagine Abraham having much strength over him. And surely Isaac wasn't fooled when he began to lay himself out on the altar while Abraham poured oil all over him. In some ways, we can understand that Isaac was aware of what was happening. Here is the wood, says Isaac, and here is the fire, but where is the lamb of sacrifice? Abraham, ever confident in the Lord, doesn't speak deceitfully to his son. God himself will provide the lamb, he says. In some way, Abraham knew that God had some greater plan, though Abraham couldn't imagine what it was. The author of the letter to the Hebrews hints that Abraham could have had faith that God would raise Isaac from the dead, but we really don't know the heart of Abraham. What we know is that Abraham didn't doubt that the Lord never commands his people to do something which is not for their good, despite how we may never comprehend how good could come out of it. Abraham had total trust in the Lord his God, and so did Isaac. God himself will provide the lamb. But God doesn't send a lamb to replace Isaac. I don't know if you ever catch that in the story. Genesis records that when Abraham turns around, he found a ram with an R, not a lamb, caught in a thorn bush. And the ram took the place of Isaac as the victim for the sacrifice. Now the Jews would commemorate this moment over and over again in their liturgy by blowing a ram's horn every time the temple had a sacrifice, as if reminding God that he still had not given them a lamb yet. The image wasn't lost on the early Christians. The chant, which very quickly became associated with the Mass of Palm Sunday, intentionally mimics the sound of the ram's horn in its melody as the choir sings, Hosanna to the Son of David, the King of Israel. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. Now, despite the oddity of this whole story, the message of Isaac's near-death experience is, is really pretty plain. 
Abraham held the ultimate faith in God. He knew that God would make good in his promises, even if he couldn't imagine how any good was possible. And Abraham's story wasn't really happy from this moment on either. Abraham and Isaac return to their home to find that Abraham's wife, Sarah, has died. The Eastern fathers of the church say that Sarah died of a broken heart, imagining that by now her son had been sacrificed. And Abraham, who had been promised to be the father of nations, is left to barter with pagan merchants to buy a place to bury his wife. Now, in a similar way, the Lord in the gospel will take Peter, James, and John up the mountain, and miraculously, he is transfigured before them. And everything wasn't happy for Peter and James and John after that, either. Jesus comes down from the mountain, and he goes directly to Jerusalem, where he's arrested, murdered, and buried. And yet, through all of that, there stands John, perfect in trust, perfect in hope, never once doubting that despite his bewilderment at what was happening, God's promises are always fulfilled. That's the model of our virtue of hope. God doesn't want our relationship with him to be one that's just purely based on emotional highs. Right? Hope is the ability to see through the mess, to have confidence in God despite our inability to see what lies ahead. Now, Abraham could agree to take up Isaac on the mountain to be sacrificed because despite how awful this request from God sounded, Abraham hoped that God knew and planned a better way. Now, it wasn't a hope that God was going to change his mind. And it wasn't also a hope that God was just testing him or that God was just fooling him, lying to him, hoping that he wouldn't go through with it. Abraham went up the mountain because he had confidence that God was right. There wasn't an ounce of pride that held Abraham back. God is constantly asking us to do things in total confidence of him. But we're so focused on wanting to see the end results before we even get there that we avoid what God is asking entirely. Now, the church tells us again and again and again to do all sorts of things, to confess our sins, to fast, to come to various devotions, to make certain spiritual practices. But we don't do what the church is asking of us because we don't see the payout. We don't see how this thing that we don't understand is going to be any use to us. And so instead, we just get frustrated that things aren't going our way, or they're not simpler, or the church has so many rules, and and suddenly it's God or the church at fault. We're being asked to do too much. We're being made to do something ridiculous or foolish or unnecessary. People tell me sometimes that they don't like that the church does this, you know, or or this thing in the mass. They don't like this, or or they're being asked to do that. I just want to shake them. I want to tell them, do you not see that the church wants to make you holy? Don't you realize that she has done this for so many centuries, for two millennia? She's been practicing this. She has so much experience. She has so much wisdom. She's the expert here. And if she's telling you to do something, it's because she has complete confidence that this is for your good. Why do you really need a church then if you're already perfect? You know, why do you need a God? We can cripple ourselves with indecision. I saw this when I was in vocation ministry. I used to be the director of seminarians for our diocese, and young people who are right in the edge of making a decision toward a priestly or religious vocation, and the only thing holding them back was fear. Fear of the unknown. Fear of what every minute detail is going to look like for the next 60 years of their life. And they could remain stuck in that fear for years, crippled in indecision and fear. And so much could be gained if we just stopped fighting If we started listening to what the church is telling us to do in Lent, for instance, prayer, fasting, and almsgiving, go to confession, right? Or whatever time of year, whatever place, whatever calling. If we just followed through with what the church is telling us to do, if we could just have the same confidence of Abraham, God himself will provide the lamb. So there's nothing that God asks us to do that isn't for our good. We aren't meant to see why or how or when or where. No, we're meant to see God. And if we're doing the will of God, 
and, and that's all we care about, it's all we hope in, right, then everything else falls in place. And there's so much peace in that. I'm going to conclude today with a prayer um, from St. Claude. He gives us a prayer for hope. My God, I believe most firmly that you watch over all those who hope in you and that we can want for nothing when we rely upon you in all things. Therefore, I am resolved for the future to have no anxieties and to cast all my cares on you. People may deprive me of worldly goods and honors. Sickness may take from me my strength and the means of serving you. I may even lose your grace by sin, but my trust will never leave me. I will preserve it to the last moment of my life, and the powers of hell shall seek in vain to wrestle it from me. Let others seek happiness in their wealth, in their talents. Let them trust to the purity of their lives, the severity of their mortifications, to the number of their good works, to the fervor of their prayers. But as for me, O oh my God, in my very confidence lies all my hope. For you, O oh Lord, alone have settled me in hope. Praise be Jesus Christ, now and forever. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.